Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations in mental illness. Mind Medicine Australia acts as a nexus between clinicians, academia, government regulators, philanthropists and patients, working in close consultation and partnership with relevant experts and organizations. Now, for the new listeners out there, I'm Tommy Moore. I'm host of this podcast, Mind Medicine Australia, which is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast brings scientific researchers, practitioners, and those who have been personally affected by the healing powers of psychedelic-assisted therapies together to provide expert opinion, share research results, and to ultimately help educate the public on the immense potential of medicine-assisted therapies. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia. How are we doing that? We are providing educational material and events like this one, therapist training. So we've got a certificate in psychedelic-assisted therapy accreditation that can be acquired via the website, ethical and legal guidelines, and now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies, and of course, supporting clinical research. If you want to support our endeavours, join some local chapter groups. You can share this podcast with your friends or on social media. You can leave a five-star review and provide comments or questions to the podcast. And that all really helps get this type of information out there. And of course, you can donate directly at mindmedicineaustralia.org. Check out all the show notes for all the links. Thank you for your support and interest in this emerging space. Let's get to it. There is this resurgence of interest and focus on the potential clinical application of various psychotropic plants and compounds. Around the world, psychedelic-assisted therapies are on the cusp of a widespread acceptance as a breakthrough therapy for key classes of mental illness. These medicines have been shown to be very, very safe and non-addictive when used in a medically controlled environment. Of particular interest is psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for major and treatment-resistant depression. And joining us today is President, Chief Business Officer and Co-Founder of Compass Pathways. He focuses on operations, digital health solutions and also fundraising. Compass Pathways, for those who are unfamiliar, is a UK life sciences company that works to expedite the approval and delivery of mental health therapies to patients. Compass is primarily focused on testing psilocybin for use in patients with treatment-resistant depression. They have 22 trials running through the United States and Europe for for this treatment-resistant depression. Now, I wanted to sit down with Lars, coming from a for-profit company um, that is obviously recently actually chose to patent their form of psilocybin. And so this created quite an uproar in the psychedelic community. Um, And I really wanted to understand what that actually means for the scientific exploration uh, and further investigation of psilocybin. So in this conversation, we spoke about Lars's personal journey and his battles with anxiety and seeking psychiatric help. He spoke about his subjective experience of psilocybin and the subsequent birth of Compass. We chat about the current landscape of the research, where it's happening, who's involved. And we speak about psilocybin's impact on emotional processing and cognitive function. We then get into the conversation of research questions that need to be addressed. How do we scale the model? Are there individual signatures for the model? And what about for the patients that don't respond to this medicine and treatment? And so when we were recording this, we were having a few technical difficulties. And so they ended up recording it on their end. And so they sent it to me afterwards. And there was a bit of a drop in the quality, but I'm sure you'll all be fine with it. I happily listened back to it. So please enjoy this conversation with Lars Wild. 
Lars, first and foremost, welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast. Thanks for having me, Tommy. Awesome to be here. Really looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a really exciting one. And honestly, looking forward to building relationships within Mind Medicine and also to international companies and nonprofit organizations to really hone down on what we're all about and what we're all doing, why we're doing it. So perhaps let's start with your personal journey. How did you become personally interested and involved with psychedelics and subsequently Compass? Yeah, no, no absolutely. So um, look, my background is um, in, in entrepreneurship. So I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, I've built companies more in technology, e-commerce, engineering, and um, one of these companies is called uh, Springlane, which is a, a direct-to-consumer uh, e-com and engineering company for everything around the kitchen uh, for hobby chefs. And um, so we built a large company here in Europe. Um, part of that company was a very large content business. We were operating the largest uh, cooking magazine uh, digitally in Germany with at the peak around 10 million unique readers a month. And that uh, project was run by a good friend of mine um, who uh, used to be a Michelin star chef and then he joined the company and he built out all the kind of internal uh, cooking film studios etc and he um, was in his mid-40s and very unexpectedly uh, died uh, during a concert of his band where he was a lead singer from a massive heart attack uh, on stage um, he would have said this was his optimal uh, death but still for the rest of us it was a major shock he was a single father and uh, we as the company helped to organize the funeral and while that was happening a lot of other things uh, happened so my my wife had a health diagnosis which looked very uh, bad at the time luckily it turned out to be a wrong diagnosis and then uh, things in the company were really stressful at the time uh, and then also i was betrayed by a friend of mine uh, who was uh, in one of my companies and let us down and so you know sometimes in life things happen all at the same time and that was one of these events and um, that left me with generalized anxiety disorder as I later learned um, what it meant for me subjectively was that I just had very very high rates of anxiety had trouble sleeping uh, was nervous extremely nervous all the time and had rebounds of panic attacks out of nowhere um, with no clear triggers uh, which was basically rushes of adrenaline. And I'm a very social and uh, person. And uh, at the time, we had roughly 120 employees. And typically, I would enjoy very much our social activities and uh, being in meetings with people. And suddenly, this all turned around. And I didn't enjoy being with people. I had a lot of social anxiety. It was just very awkward for me. And I contacted a friend of mine uh, who was a doctor and said, look, I need to... Um, I need to deal with this problem. I want to run this company. I want to be my old self. Uh, never thought I would seek psychiatric help. Now you can help me. Um, and I was put on SSRIs first, um, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are given for depression and anxiety disorder. Um, they did very little, uh, to be honest, uh, in terms of um, the reducing the symptoms of the anxiety disorder. Um, they, I think they contributed to kind of an, a blunted emotional response. So I didn't feel a lot of joy nor a lot of uh, negative emotion either. So I just felt that my bandwidth of emotional expression was narrowed down to a, to a narrow bandwidth. And the anxiety got stronger. So it was kind of like the background noise was muted and now I could feel the anxiety all the way through. And um, so that got worse over some time. Um, and uh, eventually I got back to my friend and said, look, it's not working. Um, and he said, okay, we need to put you on the next uh, uh, suitable medication. He, he thought that I would not respond well to benzodiazepines. Um, so I was put on atypical uh, tricyclics, um, which did a good job in muting the anxiety. It was kind of in the background, so I didn't experience it actively anymore, but I felt it was still there in a way that I knew the day I would stop the medication, it would come back. But the, uh, the medication just made my life horrible. So in that, I, you know, I didn't have any emotional expression anymore. I, uh, I got increasingly depressed. I was a very functional depressed person. So people wouldn't be able to tell from the outside. I would get up in the morning, run the company, come back home late at night. 
that would be in a constant state of rumination and being trapped in thinking patterns that are very unhealthy and I would be sad and I lost all my uh, all my joy for life really in all aspects of it. Eventually, I, I tried to get off the tricyclics, which didn't work. I had a huge rebound effect, and um, uh, so the anxiety was at, at its worst as it has ever been, which then made the depression much worse. Couldn't sleep anymore. And, you know that continued over the course of a year, um, and eventually, I. Um, realized that uh, due to the situation with um, in the company uh, with the free riding uh, shareholder and the death of my friend and you know we had a little altar in the you know in the entrance of the company that reminded us all of him um, and it was just this constant reminder of what had happened and so I decided look um, I need to to leave and move on and I did a couple of really good therapy sessions um, only a handful six seven but they were highly effective to at least have me realized that I felt trapped in the situation that I was in. Now, uh, once I understood that, I, um, I decided to uh, leave the company and form my board of directors and my venture capital investors at the time. Um, and one of my investors reached out, um, Christian Angermeyer, and said, hey, Lars, really sorry to hear that. Um, have you heard about psilocybin? Now, the word didn't mean anything to me, uh, which is funny now looking back. And um, I actually had to look it up and... Um, uh, I've been uh, an athlete for a large part of my life, rowing, and so I've been constantly drug tested. So the only drugs in my life were, you know, the occasional drink uh, or caffeine, but nothing, nothing else that would be on the um, uh, doping agencies list. And um, I found the research uh, of the past uh, 20 years, and then I stumbled over the vast body of research in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And I realized actually later this research continued in Europe all the way through into the 2000s. So there's this huge body of research showing that there's utility in these substances. Um, and so I called back my friend and said, look, um, you know, I, I feel like I explored, I, I tried everything that's out there. Nothing really made a major difference. Um, I wanna, wanna try this. And so Christian helped me to have a high dose uh, psilocybin uh, experience um, back then with mushrooms. And this was a tremendous experience. It uh, shifted my worldview, to say the least. And um, it, I, I, can, I always describe it felt like somebody was massaging uh, my brain and putting things back to where they belong. And I felt this uh, very intensely uh, where I realized that broken... Uh, pathways were repaired that's the best way I can describe it it's very unscientific but that's the subjective experience that I had and you know I got a break from my ego and the constant narrative that you know we all have in our heads and um, and uh, I reassessed a lot of my relationships in my life I can recontextualize what had happened and I saw a clear path forward uh, in that experience and um you know, coming out of that experience, um, as you know, it's it's really difficult to describe what had happened and uh, how tremendous the shift has been. I just felt amazing afterwards, and I kept getting better over the course of a week until I plateaued in a state of complete euphoria. Now, I've done a lot of things um, that are uh, maybe related to therapy or CBT, and also kind of goal setting in terms of you know being an entrepreneur etc so I sat down I wrote down the whole experience I interpreted it for myself I created step plans and what I wanted to change in my life so kind of intuitively I did a lot of things that um, uh, that, that maybe not everyone would be doing so my caveat is always uh, you know don't do, don't do it at home um, without the, the right preparation and um, but but what it left me with is uh, Kind of a deep gratefulness for that that I was able to experience that and that I improved that much and also the um, uh, the motivation to see if we can get this uh, to patients uh, quickly that have uh, similar conditions as I had. Now, <clears throat> one of the first companies that I was involved with was a in vitro fertilization clinics group. So my first goal was uh, to start a group of clinics in the Netherlands and then in Europe have mental health care centers that would send patients to the Netherlands. Um, if they did not respond to um, standard of care treatments. That's a nice business model, but it doesn't really scale. And then I got introduced to co-founders, uh, Katja and George, um, who had uh, who have a very similar story with their son. Um, he suffered from uh, OCD when he went to college and then 
uh, depression, uh, anxiety, was treated at Harvard very unsuccessfully with very negative adverse reactions to the treatment. Uh, again, he was stabilized with ketamine uh, as an off-label uh, treatment, another very powerful and useful uh, novel uh, intervention. And then he found also support in the underground through psilocybin uh, therapy. So we've both been very privileged because not many people have the access or wouldn't know how to go about it. And um, so Katya and George became funders of uh, academic research. And eventually after receiving guidance from the European uh, Medicines Agency in 2016, decided um, that they would focus on developing psilocybin as a, a therapy for treatment resistant depression. And that was uh, only very briefly thereafter we met and uh, we realized that we, we liked each other, that we could work really well with, with each other. Uh, we all had very different backgrounds. Um, so it was, there was a lot of synergy between us. And we said, we're going to focus on um, developing uh, psilocybin as a treatment for different mental health disorders uh, in Europe uh, and, and North America uh, at this point. And so we've built Compass ever since. Uh, we completed uh, a very large phase one program, which to date has been the largest completed um, blinded uh, study. And we're now uh, very far uh, in our phase 2B program, which is going to read out by the end of this year. And then hopefully, um, uh, we're all hoping for positive results, we then progress very quickly into phase 3 studies next year to get cytosine all the way uh, to the finish line. Absolutely. And yeah, with your story, it's certainly not uncommon that people are having mental difficulties and trying all of these different treatments and nothing seems to be working. And you've alluded to this idea around psilocybin kind of resetting the brain or resetting the mind because in terms of the neuroscience and of course the neuroscience is progressing and I don't want to reduce brain mind to, to simply neuroscience and depending on what studies Compass are involved with and what your relations are with the likes of Imperial College London, but certainly breaking down that network that constructs this sense of self and this self-narrative seems to be there when that rumination sparks up and this is the part of the brain or, or the area of the mind that sparks off when we're creating a sense of separation from the world and this narrative that we tell ourselves and base ourselves based on the position where we are in our, in our body and our mind that we've seen and heard through our sensory experience up to this point and for many people this sense of self is very debilitating and difficult to battle and it is a battle it's almost there's no choice involved in rumination but what so many people seem to be reporting through psilocybin and other psychedelic experiences is that the consciousness that is pulled or touches the energy or the energy being that feeling of rumination or any thought is always going to be stronger than the energy that's pulling on it so your experience, can you describe to us what the context was, what environment you were in when you had this experience? I know that's a great question. And it's a beautiful description that you had there, right? Um, you know, we're the prisoners of our own egos, right? And I think one of the benefits of these experience uh, that, that you know, I experienced, you have seemed to experience and others that have gone through it is that you know, the ego is a construct that our brain creates, but it's not the uh, soul um, so reality. Now with that understanding coming out of these experiences, you suddenly see your ego more as a tool, right? That you can deploy and it can be very useful when it's strong in certain situations, but you know that you can step away from it. Um, and I think that in itself is very therapeutic. And as you said, the, you know, the, uh, we're, we're working very closely with Imperial, uh, Robin Card Harris, um, obviously is a close collaborator of ours and then many other mechanistic researchers. And the brain is so complex, right? It's, uh, we, you know, research is only beginning to understand how it might work. We still don't know exactly how memories are formed, where they are stored. Uh, we have no idea what consciousness is. And so without these basic understandings, it's, it's really difficult to say what is really happening there. Um, I think what we know is um, uh, that, that, that certain networks are uh, unhealthily overstrengthened uh, in these disorders and um, uh, psilocybin, uh, seems to be uh, reversing that unhealthy overstrengthening um, over the course of one therapy session. Now, uh, to your question with um, uh, my experience, 
uh, that's the caveat, right? I, said, I would say, look, it's not the typical therapeutic uh, session. I think I got some things right, uh, just from my research uh, before, in that um, I did it with a, uh, with a trusted friend um, in a uh, living room-like uh, atmosphere um, with a clear intention, right? My intention was to figure out what is wrong with me um, and, and what can I do to, uh, to get better. Um, and so that that was the clear intention. Um, but then I was presented with a lot of insights that I had not expected uh, in the experience. Um, uh, very interesting. I uh, at some point during the experience, we also went into a beautiful garden and I felt very connected to to nature in a way that I hadn't before, or at least not since childhood. Um, and I, I remember how important, for example, the connection to nature is for me. And when I think, you know, what does change after such an experience? So for example, I spent much more time in nature. Uh, you know, I moved outside of the city, I live next to the forest, I spend a lot of time outside if I can. Um, uh, and, and, and so I think these are some of these behavioral changes that have been seen uh, in patients. Now I would recommend that, you know, anyone who's looking into these treatments, uh, ideally, hopefully post-approval, people can exit it very safely with a guided uh, therapist in the right setting. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, people should be very, very careful exploring these states because while uh, people have very um, um, groundbreaking breakthroughs in these treatments, these can be extremely challenging experiences as well. Uh, trauma that is that we are completely unaware of might show up during such a session which uh, shakes up significantly and that needs to be embedded in the therapy um, uh, context. And um, so I think that's, that's a really important caveat to, to make here. Certainly. And that challenging experience or what people would call a bad trip can be part of the therapy itself. And there are people who are using it haphazardly and thinking that it's purely psilocybin that's doing the therapy. And whilst there's arguments for and against that, the therapy that we're talking about is psilocybin assisted therapy, which is the medicine and the treatment that's involved. It's not as simple as taking psilocybin as a typical pharmaceutical. You don't take the drug home. It's very different to that. And so across the world, there are clinical research institutions and other institutions that are trying to really fine-tune what exactly that psilocybin-assisted therapy or other psychedelic-assisted therapies look like. So could you perhaps speak to some of the research that you're either involved with or are looking more closely at across Europe and America? Yeah, no, no, very happy to. And it's such a fascinating field because initially, we're right, when we look back the last 20 years, the work, the amazing work that has been done at UCLA and Hopkins and Zurich and NYU, etc., they replicated a lot of the work that had been done in the 50s and 60s, now in a standardized form, controlled trials. So to, according to the standards we do today, and they confirmed that what people had observed with LSD and uh, psilocybin in the 1950s and 60s uh, remained true today. Now, with that, um, unfortunately, in the early 1970s, the global ban on psychedelics happened, and not a lot of research in humans has happened ever since, at least not in the English-speaking world. And that means that there's still a lot to be learned. And um, so, for example, one of the big questions the regulators had is with that uh, very profound effect on, uh, on the brain uh, and the emotional state of a patient, uh, could there be any long-term negative consequences from psilocybin and healthy normals? And um, so one of the first uh, programs that we ran was a phase uh, uh, one uh, program at um, King's College in London where um, we uh, looked at the impact that psilocybin has on um, emotional functioning and um, uh, executive function as measured by uh, CANTAP, the Cambridge Cognition Test. And uh, indeed, we found that uh, it does not impact uh, neither emotional processing nor uh, executive function uh, in healthy normals, uh, which was a, an important finding. Uh, I think what was more interesting to me uh, in that study, I think that was our hypothesis that psilocybin would be very benign. Uh, what we uh, were able to show in the study that we uh, were able to treat up to six participants at the same time in the same room, um, which hadn't been done in any of the modern studies. Um, and that was interesting because that allowed us to reduce the therapist to participant ratio from the typical two therapists to one 
therapist per participant. And interestingly, the patients had the possibility to separate themselves from the group. And then the whole trial, no, no participant had uh, chosen to do so. Um, now that is very interesting. And we're now exploring um, that administration model for the first time in patients uh, with a partner institute in the United States in um, major depressive disorder patients um, that have a cancer diagnosis and therefore are depressed and anxious. Um, they were preparing uh, patients in groups of four, they have a simultaneous uh, therapy session and then they're integrating as well in, in groups of four. And one of the hypotheses that uh, the field has is that the uh, group experience and integrating, being able to talk about the experience and process it together has a therapeutic character uh, in itself. And so that's going to be an interesting one because we need to think about how do we scale this treatment once we come to market, right? We, there's going to be limited space. Um, we need to train a lot of therapists. And so how do we make this uh, scalable in a, in a very safe manner? Now, that was an interesting study. Um, then you spoke about uh, Robbins and, uh, and the Imperial team's amazing study comparing psilocybin to acetalopram. Normally, you wouldn't run a comparison study with that amount of patients. You would have hundreds and hundreds, potentially actually thousands of patients in a, a superiority uh, study. And for psilocybin to at least numerically outperform acetalopram, which is the best performing antidepressant out there. And then again, also acetalopram in combination with therapy, which is the most potent combination, uh, was a huge uh, success and, and therefore it made it into the New England Journal of Medicine. And again, it confirmed um, that what we believe that psilocybin has a very different mode uh, of action. Um, it made us confident in the trial results we're going to have in the phase 2B. Now, in the phase 2B, you spoke about psychedelic-assisted uh, uh, psychotherapy earlier. Um, what the regulators want to deeply understand is what is the effect of, uh, of the drug um, in itself. And when I say drug, it's the psilocybin experience uh, session, right? And so all patients are prepared in our study for high-dose experience. And we have three different uh, arms in the study. A control group, which is a one milligram dose of psilocybin, which is not psychoactive. Then a 10 milligram dose, which is mildly... It's a mild psychedelic experience. And then the 25 milligram dose, which is a strong uh, psychedelic experience. And um, that happens in a mental health care facility. And then we're following the patients afterwards with integration sessions through a lead therapist and taking their uh, depression scores over time, the primary endpoint at week three. Um, we're looking at how rapid is the response and how strong is it at week three. And then we're following the patients until week 12 in that study to see how many patients were able to um, maintain the antidepressant response until week 12. And then we're also enrolling these patients into a long-term follow-up study. Now that's a single dose, right? And so um, you mentioned integration is very important. Um, so the, one of the big questions is uh, you know, how do you, uh, what's the optimal therapy post uh, the experience? How do you help patients make sense of the experience and take the learnings forward? Um, but as we've seen in some of these other studies earlier, is there two uh, complex uh, problems with psilocybin therapy. One is similar to all other antidepressants. Some patients won't respond. Um, and, and we've seen that, I think, uh, again, also in, in, in Robin's study, um, that some patients just didn't respond. Now, the, the question is, um, how often could you dose these patients um, with a couple of weeks in between in order to get a response? Uh, from them to the treatment. So that's one of the research questions that needs to be answered in the future. And then also the question, some patients have a very strong response, antidepressant response. They are great at week three, but then, you know, come week eight, week 12, they suddenly find themselves becoming depressed again. And the question there is, and some patients never get depressed again, right? So there's this huge bandwidth of, uh, of, of treatment response. And the question that we need to answer is, are there individual signatures um, that that would predict how somebody responds to the treatment over time. Um, and, and therefore, can we have individualized treatment approaches? Can we follow them with technological uh, approaches to forecast when they would get depressed and then have them come back and have another dose of psilocybin before they actually become depressed, not once they have become depressed? So these are all questions that need to be answered uh, in the future. And then the important concept of set and setting. Um, uh, at the moment, the whole field is operating in a model that has been developed at Harvard in the 1950s in terms of set and setting. Um, 
uh, set being the mindset that the patient has coming into the experience and setting the environment in which it happens, the therapist, the safe container. And the question is, could you modulate um, also the, uh, the setting, for example, um, or even the mindset going into the experience and, and looking for different outcomes, um, which is another very interesting, statistically very complex uh, to, to actually execute such a study, but to, to understand uh, what are the variables here. And um, I think uh, uh, it's official now that Robin Card Harris is moving to uh, UCSF uh, in San Francisco, joining uh, Adam Gazelli, uh, who's a, a world leading researcher in uh, amongst other things, virtual reality and uh, digital tools for treating uh, neurological conditions. Um, and so they're gonna do a lot of work, I believe, on, on figuring out how can we modulate the experience acutely uh, and, and do we see diff different treatment outcomes with that? Yeah, it does seem to be like the research is entering somewhat of maturity. I wouldn't call it that it's in its infancy because I think we are at a stage now where we can recognize that there is certainly therapeutic value and promise in these substances. And obviously there is fine tuning and, and understanding of what the biological basis of the experience is. And there is plenty of research happening in regards to the brain and, and what's happening to the body and how we can navigate that into a therapeutic outcome. Then, of course, trying to figure out whether there is more than one option or scenario in which these can be administered in. And obviously, in regards to something like treatment-resistant depression, we need to be a little more, a bit more rigorous in our approach and, and careful in making sure that patients are getting the best care possible. And so, in that, the fine-tuning is what happens during that psilocybin therapy session, how much input does the therapist have and whether or not, like you were saying, there could be an option for multiple people to be able to do it simultaneously. And was that the healthy volunteer study that you were relating to then? Yeah, exactly. So we did this in the healthy volunteer study um, and, and we're now exploring that in uh, patient trials going forward. Um, the question is, you know, maybe, maybe there's a blended model um, in the future that one could explore, right? Where you look at uh, having an individual session first because every uh, patient will respond very differently to the uh, psychedelic experience. And once they have accustomed themselves to the psychedelic experience and we would move into much more of a maintenance model where in you know every couple of months or every couple of years, a patient would access psilocybin therapy. Maybe they could do that then in a different setting. But obviously um, that requires a large body of research for the regulators to uh, approve this and so we we're very curious to to learning more in the coming years and as you said the field is really uh, in a way at its infancy um, obviously there are amazing people that have um, kept the light light on um, during prohibition and have done a lot of amazing work and um, um, and, and then came back early and restarted that research uh, what is very confidence inspiring is now you see all these amazing young researchers from all different fields uh, coming in, um, starting centers um, all around the world. Harvard is now uh, back in, in the game. Uh, we brought a couple of centers back into the mix. Um, Stanford is running studies again. Berkeley is running studies again um, in the US. And you see that you know Australia is, uh, is becoming very active. Several European countries are becoming very active. Although one thing I think that we that we see is that um, the understanding of the uh, prospects of psychedelic therapy uh, are much uh, more widely understood uh, in the English speaking world. Um, I sit in Germany, for example, today and uh, here uh, we have one trial site. It was a long process to get them uh, get the regulators convinced that this is a viable treatment to to research and only now, um, kind of the wider public is learning through press articles on the prospects of psychedelic therapy. We see the same in France and the Netherlands and other countries. So there's a long way to go as well in, in, in kind of not only running these studies, but then also working with the medical establishment to uh, make them aware uh, with, the, with us moving closer to markets and other moving closer to markets that these treatments should be made accessible uh, to patients mm. if we show safety and efficacy. Yeah, that's it. And of course... We are working with a Schedule 1 drug, so that makes it very difficult to progress the research when you need, most of the time, private funding 
for this type of research to actually happen. Considering a Schedule 1 substance being high potential for abuse and of no therapeutic value, obviously starting to recognise the therapeutic value, but and in regards to that, Compass were granted FDA breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. And so what would happen in regards to the scheduling system? If all goes well throughout phase 2b and phase 3 and beyond, where do you hope that psilocybin will sit in that scheduling system? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we believe that psilocybin wrongfully sits in Schedule 1. Uh, so we're involved in an initiative uh, in the UK for rescheduling psilocybin to make it easier for researchers to uh, work with psilocybin. It's a very tedious process uh, today. Uh, you have to work with all kinds of authorities um, to get every step of the way of the uh, supply chain uh, license to get the drug product to the formulation partner and then eventually to the clinical trial side across borders, etc. So it has been highly complex and um, we're running the phase to be in uh, 10 countries uh, under a single protocol um, and uh, the processes are fairly similar in, in all countries. I think the FDA and the DA are a good example. Um, so once we have positive phase three results at the FDA uh, subsequently approves psilocybin therapy, uh, with doing that, what they're saying is that psilocybin is safe uh, for the patient population um, and it is, uh, uh, or the margin of safety is, uh, is good enough for that patient population and we've shown efficacy. Now with that, you don't fulfill the, um, the criteria for Schedule 1, uh, not anymore, uh, because you have shown medical utility. Um, and then uh, there's an eight-factor model um, which is applied to rescheduling drugs that, that becomes a fairly automatic process um, afterwards within the DEA uh, where they have to reschedule the drug. Worst case would be it just moves from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Um, that would uh, mean that in terms of the administration oversight, uh, there's a lot of burden on the system. Um, I think uh, with Psilocybin's uh, very benign safety profile that it would uh, at least move to Schedule 3. Uh, Johns Hopkins has actually done an, uh, uh, compiled an excellent paper walking through the eight-factor model um, and arguing for where psilocybin should sit. Johns Hopkins believes it should be a Schedule 1 drug uh, post-approval, uh, Schedule 5 drug, excuse me, <laughs> move from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5. Uh, that would, of course, be fantastic. It would make the um, uh, dealing with that drug very uh, easy to move it from uh, from kind of the point of manufacture to the uh, provider systems. Um, but, you know, anything in between, kind of between Schedule 3 and 5 would be would be great. And I think we, we can make a strong case once the positive results are hopefully there um, uh, for that uh, scheduling. Yeah, certainly. So Compass are obviously involved in the pharmaceutical development of psilocybin, so COMP360 is obviously the, the pharmaceutical manufacturing of psilocybin. Is that a generic thing across the board? Are all studies using the same psilocybin derivative? Are there opportunities for having the mushroom itself? Because recently Compass were granted two patents by the US Patent and Trademark Office that cover oral formulations of Compass's synthetic psilocybin uh, for the treatment of major depressive disorder, which includes treatment-resistant depression. So what does this patent entail and what does this mean for the scientific and clinical exploration of psilocybin? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, and let me tackle it from a couple of uh, angles. So first of all, um, what's being researched out there? Um, uh, many different psychedelic substances, which is great to see. So the field is not only looking at uh, psilocybin, but many other uh, serotonergic and, and other psychedelics um, these days. Um, Compass at the moment is very focused on uh, psilocybin uh, in the late stage clinical development programs. And then we have novel compounds that are going through our preclinical work at the moment uh, with a differentiated profile. Uh, with the goal to have new molecules in the clinic within the next roughly 24 months um, uh, with certain profiles targeting specific indications. Now, um, there are very, very few studies with uh, mushrooms uh, out there um, because it's very difficult to work with fungal material and standardize the dose, the 
dose is very important. Um, while a 25 milligram dose is uh, manageable, um, uh, you might have uh, variants of up to 10 times in, in fungal material. And so somebody might end up uh, with, you know, thinking that they are taking a 25 milligram dose based on weighing some uh, fungal material and end up with a significantly higher dose, which can be very disorienting. Um, so most of the, um, or all of the uh, clinical trials are using a synthetic uh, psilocybin. Um, many of them are using uh, our psilocybin. Um, others are using uh, different manufacturers. Uh, psilocybin, there are now a lot of providers providing research grade, um, uh, or not a lot, but there are a few uh, providers providing research grade psilocybin to uh, research sites. And um, the question around our uh, specific drug product, um, I think it's best to uh, talk about the history um, of our uh, development program on the on the drug manufacturing side. Uh, so one of the big questions was, um, you know, how do we manufacture psilocybin initially? And we thought, well, you know, Sandoz has manufactured psilocybin in the 1950s and 60s, and other researchers have later published on scalable manufacturing of, of psilocybin, so it shouldn't be that hard. But when we then actually looked at the uh, synthesis uh, methods that were out there, um, one of the problems was that when we used a scalable synthesis, we had very impure drug product, which is not acceptable in terms of the CGMP uh, requirements by the regulators. Um, and if we used one of the more modern uh, synthesis methods, there was, for example, one <clears throat> coming out of Japan that said that uh, they would be able to create high purity psilocybin at scale, broke it down uh, very quickly at larger batch sizes. And uh, for regulatory purposes and eventually commercial purposes, you need to be able to create uh, larger batch sizes, which in our case, since psilocybin is not going to be given daily, but it's an intermittent treatment, uh, we're talking about batch sizes of hundreds of grams to kilogram scale. And so nothing of that worked. And so we went back to the drawing board and developed our own synthesis. And um, uh, in order to, to arrive at a, at a suitable form of uh, clinical grade uh, psilocybin. Now on that way, we solved a lot of problems um, and uh, that allowed us to file patent pr protection for our uh, proprietary uh, synthesis method of psilocybin. Now, um, when we then looked at the uh, crystallization of psilocybin, we found, found different salt forms um, of psilocybin. And we looked at the most suitable salt form, uh, which is called a polymorph form. Um, that, that we found most easily um, formulatable into drug products. One of the characteristics is the flowability um, of a product, which means can you easily mix it with something, a filler material like a starch, for example, and then press it into a, a capsule. Um, if it's a gooey mass, it's very difficult to mix it and you wouldn't have the same uh, concentration from capsule to capsule. So that was one of the important criteria we had. And then the uh, level of purity, because the regulators feel very strongly ab about having pure uh, drug products that are then turned into drugs for patients for safety reasons. And um, the polymorphic form that we had chosen uh, for drug development turned out that this was never described in the uh, literature before. So it was unknown, so we discovered it. And that allowed us to file uh, patent protection for that specific polymorphic form. And so we've decided to then develop that specific salt form of psilocybin. So that is really the core of our patents, the synth synthesis and that specific polymorphic form. And then method of use claims. So you can protect the use of that specific form of psilocybin for treating certain health conditions, such as major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression and other mood disorders. Now, what that does it does, it will protect us from generic competition uh, once we come to market. Um, otherwise, you have very quickly the Tevas of this world, especially when it's a small molecule manufacture, the small molecule and flush the market with it. Obviously, we believe their uh, psilocybin uh, therapy uh, should be delivered in a certain way with set and setting carefully uh, administered to patients with an eye towards safety. Um, and therefore, we felt strongly that we want to uh, absolutely be in charge of how this treatment is going to be developed for patients. Um, and so that is what we are uh, protecting. Um, that doesn't protect, uh, that, that doesn't prevent anyone from doing research with uh, psilocybin. Um, patents are only relevant in, uh, in the commercial realm. So once we start marketing, uh, it will protect us from people just not having done the work, not having done the big clinical trials, but then 
being able to just come to market and start selling psilocybin from that we are protected uh, through our patent estate in the United States and Europe and in now beginning in Asia. Totally, we have eight patents and there, uh, you know, obviously we keep uh, building on that, that patent estate. Um, but other people can develop other forms, uh, of course. And um, so it's really focused on protecting our innovation. And I think one of the things that I, I, I found very unfortunate is that in, in kind of social media coverage, people said, oh, Compass is patenting the therapy and room decor and lighting and music. And um, that was taken out of context. As you see it in any patent, uh, you don't... Uh, uh, basically say, look, this is molecule X and we're only patenting that molecule, but you speak about, you know, how is it going to be delivered when you look at, for example, the patenting around chemotherapy, the syringes are described, the chairs in which it is delivered is described so that the whole container is, is clear. That doesn't mean that people uh, with that patented syringes and chairs, it's really the combination. And so again, for us, it's, um, it's the protection of our form of psilocybin and then um, the, the, the set and setting um, uh, in combination with that, which wouldn't preclude anyone who wants to deliver any other uh, psychedelic, any other form of psilocybin from obviously doing it in a nice room with a therapist, etc. So I think that's very important. And I, I'll keep repeating myself on that topic. Uh, we're not patenting a set and setting. Yeah, and there was quite the media uproar in response to that. So I thought it would be good and important to get your point of view. So we could paint the idea of what this actually means and what it means for the research and things like that. If there was, say, a startup that came up down the track, granted that there was a certain approval and they used a different method in creating psilocybin, and let's say it was as pure, what would the legalities be there? Yeah, I think uh, difficult to say without knowing what they're doing. <laughs> but uh, generally, uh, you know, many many roads uh, lead to Rome. Uh, so I believe people can develop different solutions um, and uh, develop their own uh, solutions. I think that um, there's a bit of a uh, exuberance in the markets. I would say. I mean, if you know, if there's an explosion of startups developing uh, psilocybin and other uh, molecules. Um, I don't think it's it's useful um, if people would go and develop psilocybin, for example, as well for treatment-resistant depression. Why? Because this whole development program will cost us roughly 500 or million uh, US dollars. And um, so someone else who wanted to develop psilocybin as well for treatment-resistant depression would again have to spend a similar amount of money uh, to develop it. And I feel that would be a waste of uh, resources if they could develop uh, uh, psilocybin or any other psychedelic for another um, uh, condition, right? Because mental health suffering is such a big issue. Uh, one in four people on this planet will suffer uh, from some type of mental health disorder over their lifetime. Drug development is very expensive. So I, I think we need to be um, resourceful with uh, where we put, uh, put our efforts in the field. And so I, I, I'm really encouraged by all these other new companies looking at different indications, different molecules. So there's still a lot to be learned. And, you know, there's never going to be a, a, a monopoly, right? This is, uh, these molecules are well understood. Sasha Shulgin has done an amazing job in creating so many molecules and, and putting them in the public domain that people can use as a starting point for the new drug development. So we will see different players um, in this field. Um, I think where Compass wants to position itself as, as a mental health care company. Um, our focus is uh, on accelerating uh, innovation um, uh, for patient access. And, and, and what we mean by that is we want to run these late stage clinical trials in as many countries as possible and working with uh, both the regulators, the payers for full reimbursement and also the provider system so that we can roll out these treatments. And so I'm very encouraged with all these new companies and drug discovery and early stage drug development uh, we're in constant exchange with them. I think we're going to be very well positioned to license or take over some of um, these developments uh, at a later stage um, and develop them as fast as possible to patients. Um, so overall, I'm very, very encouraged by the development in this field and all the research coming up today. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the reason why we began all of this is because we are in a mental health crisis. Hundreds of millions of people are facing these challenges every day and it does frustrate me that people will throw up their hands and 
fight for their lives to halt the progression. But when it comes to these treatments, there's always going to be some profit made somewhere. There's always going to be charities and there's always going to be companies involved with it. What we really need to hone in on is why we're doing this, come back to the reason behind this all. And I think there's always going to be scrutiny between certain companies. I think there's, there's healthy competition and who's going to be that company that gets the pharmaceutical arm over the other? Well, we'll find out at the end of the day in a hundred years time, that's not going to matter because it's about treating mental illness and fixing that worldwide problem that is becoming more and more prevalent and, and prominent with less treatments being available to the population or less effective treatments being available. And that's not to say all treatments don't work. Many treatments do work, but they don't all work. And we really do lack innovation. And from what we've seen with psilocybin and other psychedelic therapies is there, there is incredible promise. And there will be no doubt profits made worldwide from new treatments. And I really don't want that to get in the way of treating people's mental health. And I really hope it doesn't. We really need to focus on building positive relationships, you know, between Mind Medicine Australia and Compass and MAPS and other organisations and charities all over the world that are paving the way forward for these types of treatments. And they are treatments. Like we mentioned earlier, it's not like you take these drugs home. You know, it's psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. You don't take psilocybin home and microdose for the rest of your life and your depression is cured. It's potentially cured within two to three medicinal doses between, I guess, three months of the psychotherapy course. And as we mentioned also earlier, we're fine-tuning how many doses and what the therapy session looks like which is why we need to be open about more research and and I hope that hearing the positive benefits of psilocybin, people aren't getting carried away and just go and pick some mushrooms at their closest forest. This isn't at all what we're suggesting. This is psilocybin-assisted therapy. So just to close out this conversation, I think it's really important that we speak to the set and setting, what that protocol looks like and I know that Roland Griffith's lab did some really important studies uh, about 15 years ago that really proved the safety and efficacy of psychedelic substances in a clinical setting, given the right set and setting in the right environment. So what does that protocol look like? Yeah, I think you said something so well right now, Tommy, that I, that I really want to highlight, which is we're, we're all striving for the same goal, right? If we, if we look at mental health suffering globally and we only look at depression, right? Every 45 seconds, someone on this planet commits suicide. For every successful suicide, 22 people try. And that's really what we're up against. And um, it's not about profit or not profit, right? It's about helping these patients. And what I find very encouraging is when you see, you know, Rick Doblin, right? He's, he's a friend and an amazing um uh, figure in the overall field that made this research possible but driving maps with MDMA for PTSD for 35 years through the regulatory pathways and fighting a lot of these battles which uh, quite frankly made a lot of the uh, now psychedelic renaissance uh, possible right um, but when you look at now all these uh, new players and and how quickly they are developing and how quickly we're driving these molecules um, through the regulatory pathways I think that's very encouraging and so um, I know that some people are critical towards competition. I think competition is uh, in the interest of patience here. It allows us to move very uh, rapidly uh, through to approval. Um, the competition is great because it will also keep uh, prices uh, in check. Um, so I think that's desirable as well. Um, when I speak about Compass, right, for us, it has always been patient access. Um, so even before we started the company, we've already worked with insurances and payers to make sure that we're running studies not only for approval but then also for reimbursement because as you said psilocybin therapy and that takes me to your point is should be given in a therapeutic container it will be done with uh, therapists involved that these therapists will want to be paid and um, their time is, uh, is 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 very valuable and so 
um, we need to have these treatments reimbursed. Otherwise, it's going to be a niche treatment for the people that have a lot of money uh, and not for the majority uh, of people. And that's where we need to go, right? And so that's really very much the focus of our work on a day-to-day -day basis is how do we make these treatments scalable and affordable for, for patients. Now, you said something really important, right? Um, the container uh, for patients is very relevant. And um, uh, we spoke about set and setting earlier. Um, the way we deliver the treatment at the moment in our regular trials, regulatory trials is that all patients um, are carefully selected. We're making sure that patients that have a family history of schizophrenia or prior episodes of psychosis are not included in the trials because it's unclear if psilocybin might exacerbate the, uh, these diseases. Um, once patients are qualified into the trial, we're taking them off the antidepressant medication because it's believed that serotonergic uh, medication desensitizes the uh, 5-HT2A and 5-HT1A receptor, which are responsible for the uh, effects of the psychedelic. And um, while that happens, the patients are prepared to approach the session with openness um, to be able to uh, deal with any, uh, anything that might come up in the session through mindfulness-based techniques. Um, then the session actually happens in a mental health care facility. The treatment rooms very much look like a warm, welcoming uh, living room uh, atmosphere. They're all standardized in all 22 sites and 10 countries for us. At the moment, in our phase 2B trial, we still have two uh, therapists present um, in the sessions. Um, it's, it's an unlearning experience for most of these uh, therapists because not a lot typically happens, especially at the high dose. The patients put on their eye shades, they put on earphones, they lay down on a bed, they listen to a carefully curated soundtrack um, that then follows the pharmacological unfolding of the psychedelic experience and takes the patient through different uh, mood states in the experience, but no active therapy happens. So the therapists are only there if the patient's halfway through needs a bathroom break, or if there's some transient anxiety and they need some grounding and, and breathing through some of these phases with the therapist. And eventually uh, the average session lasts six hours with a little bit of preparation integration. It's an eight hour day in the facility. And then the patient goes home accompanied by a family a member or a friend. And then enters the last phase, which is so crucially important. We spoke about it earlier, the integration. Um, that the patient actually works with the therapist to process whatever came up psychologically and physically in the session um, to contextualize any learning, uh, to embody it. Uh, it's a very strong mindfulness-based uh, therapy that we're deploying in, in, in the therapy. Um, and, and oftentimes these patients have a deep, deep understanding what made them depressed in the first place, loss of a family member, some deep-rooted childhood trauma, how that impacted their lives, but they often see also a clear path out of that. Uh, of these behavioral patterns. That's where the therapy um, is focused and that's how we help patients. And um, I think, uh, you know, to quote Roland Griffith, um, in, in their studies at Hopkins, they, uh, they showed something extraordinary when patients that suffered with depression and anxiety due to a cancer diagnosis were asked how they would rate the meaningfulness of their psilocybin therapy experience, what I just described. And interestingly, over 70% of the participants said that the psilocybin therapy was amongst the top five most meaningful experiences of their lives, similar to a birth of a first child, the death of a parent, or their wedding day. And 1% uh, even said that psilocybin therapy was the single most meaningful experience of their lives. Now, that has a major impact on these patients' lives, and it shows how, uh, how uh, shifting in terms of the mental state these experiences can be for patients. And therefore, uh, we feel a real sense of stewardship to get this right uh, for patients to deliver it in the safest way possible to as many patients as possible that would benefit from that therapy. And that really is the focus of what we do at Compass Pathways every day. Yeah, wonderful. How far away is this regulatory approval of psilocybin-assisted therapy? You mentioned phase 2B trials are underway and phase 3 trials will inevitably follow. So how close are we to having access to this to millions of people across the world? Yeah, unfortunately, millions and millions of people, right? Um, so um, hoping that the phase 2B data will be uh, positive. Uh, we're going to have an end of phase 2B me meeting with the FDA and similarly with uh, the regulators uh, uh, globally, uh, which will then define 
um, the nitty-gritty details of the phase three. The program is designed, uh, of course, already. Uh, it will be influenced by some of the statistics that we're going to see from the phase two in terms of you know, how large do the studies have to be, for example, as a very pragmatic result. And um, then they will be run uh, starting next year um, over the course of uh, a few years. Um, Unfortunately, without the phase two B results, it's very hard to say how long these will take because it depends highly on the patient numbers required in the phase three. Um, but we're but we're confident that we're not too far away from approval. We're talking about a few years um, if the results hold up. Um, and therefore, when when you look at the work that we're doing, we're very much focused on commercialization already, uh, working with payer systems to make it reimbursed in all the countries. Uh, working with uh, the provider system so that there's actually a place where psilocybin therapy could be delivered, uh, which is not that easy uh, either because a psychiatrist has 10 minutes per patient. Um, uh, and so it needs to happen in a different framework. And we see now the explosion of ketamine-focused clinics uh, for depression and other disorders. So we're closely working with them. We're working with large mental health clinic groups that are looking to also start centers. And we're doing that through our center of excellence uh, program. So, for example, with Shepherd Pratt in Baltimore, which is one of the leading research and commercial uh, institutes in the world for mental health services, um, uh, we, we have started our own uh, center of excellence, uh, which allows us to uh, design what a uh, psychedelic treatment center should look like. We're running small signal generating studies and other uh, mental health disorders there, and it allows us also to train them therapists. So that's very much what, uh, what we're focused on. Um, next to running uh, the clinical trial so that not only we get, you know, within a few years to approval, but then once we are approved that we can then very quickly, uh, as rapidly as possible, roll it out to all the patients that are waiting. Yeah, it feels like this field of research has come so far in the last five, ten years. And I mean, I've only really been involved in this field in the last five or so years. So to see how quickly it's moving is incredibly exciting. But at the same time, we also don't want to go too fast and make sure that we don't get any of these things wrong or push back further in case of any other adverse events that might take place. So there still needs to be rigor and care in regards to how we're approaching this. But we are reaching maturity in the research and we are at the point now when we are really starting to understand what that context is, what that certain setting is, what the clinician needs to do and how they need to act. And with therapist training rolling out through Australia and through Compass as well, it's awesome to see that you guys are doing a similar thing with therapist training. So things are happening and that's very, very exciting. But of course, at the forefront is healing people. So I'm hoping that this field can continue to develop and I think the prospect of psychedelic medicine is huge and will change the world. But is there anything else you would like to add before we close this one out? Well, I think um, you made an important point um, that I think I, I just want to highlight. It's important that no one cuts corners, right? Uh, you spoke about rigor. That's one of our core values. Um, this needs to be done by the book in terms of uh, getting it across the line. Um, because we've seen the backlash against uh, psychedelics in uh, in the late 1960s, 1970s, you know we don't want it. Uh, to, we don't want a psychedelic therapy to disappear in the drawer for another 30, 40 years. Um, I think now is the time to get it right. Uh, patients can't wait. Um, and as you said, I think you're doing tremendous work in, in training therapists. That's going to be one of the you know this this is where the therapy is going to happen, right? Uh, with the providers that will be there for patients delivering these therapies and. So I applaud everyone uh, coming into this field and there are so many great new companies being started developing digital solutions and soundtrack solutions and uh, advanced therapist training. And so it's great to see this ecosystem um, evolve. And, and I think this is really a model where I would say that you know, competition is great, um, but I think there's also the model of cooperation uh, where companies compete and work together um, or organizations. And I think that is a model we should apply here, right? We should be learning from each other. We should be supporting each other because we, we fundamentally all have the same goal, right? Uh, I think, you know, this, this society is suffering uh, and I believe that psychedelics have the potential to heal that suffering. And so we should be working together to get it uh, where it should be uh, in the hand of providers for patients. And um, it's very encouraging to see everyone 
uh, being so involved. I think, you know, your podcast is phenomenal to get the word out as well to people. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm very positive about the overall field. Yeah, me too. And thank you so much for the time that you've given me and this podcast. I think it's incredibly important that these types of relationships are built between organizations and companies and anyone else involved in the psychedelic space. Coherence is of utmost importance when it comes to this and there is healthy competition throughout the world and we need to accept that there will be profits made through pharmaceuticals and through other means. But thanks again for this conversation. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and thank you for your interest and enthusiasm in mental health and psychedelic therapy. If you enjoyed this episode, enjoyed this episode, uh, which I hope that you did because you've made it to the end, share it with a friend, share it on social media, but actually the best thing that you can do is leave a review on whichever podcast platform you're on. Well, best thing you can do is all of that, but leaving a review is the best way to expose this information to the podcasting world. And finally, the information in this episode was provided for informational purposes only and was not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for any medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. We did it.